0: Erlon, I will never forget it.
1: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
0: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia is now officially partially open for some businesses. Hair salons, barbers, tattoo parlors, bowling alleys, and massage bars, well, They all were allowed to open on Friday, and starting this day, perhaps your favorite neighborhood restaurant is back to dine in, and if you can find one, a movie theater as long as proper social distancing and hygiene precautions are followed. Now, some employees will return to their jobs that were once shuttered due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Still, we've heard from many of you with questions regarding unemployment benefits. We asked you to send in your questions, and Georgia's Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler agreed to join Closer Look to address the questions and concerns. So, Commissioner Butler, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Sure.
1: Thanks for having me on.
2: And before we begin, I want to inform our listeners of a few terms we'll be discussing that they may not be familiar with. They might hear PUA, which is the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, and UI, of course, which is Unemployment Income. So let's get to the questions. Our first question is pretty timely. It comes from a listener. And he writes, can I refuse to go back to work because I still think there is a health risk and stay on unemployment?
1: Well, that's gonna be one of those kind of things you need to work out with your employer, especially if your employer filed for you. Now there are some list of reasons in which you know you can still uh, or that's allowed to be. Uh, you, where you can still allow you to get unemployment. and some of those are going to be that you know you have a medical condition. Uh, the advice of the doctor you're still supposed to be quarantining uh, or if you're over the age of 60 uh, or if you live with somebody uh, that uh, see, that's under those two categories. And also, uh, if you have school-aged children uh, that are not in school right now and there's no uh, childcare available, all those are allowable reasons uh, under the rules during COVID-19 in which you can still receive uh, unemployment. And your employer, if they've been filing for you, they should, uh, you know, if they're a good employer, they should cooperate with you and, uh, and, and work with you and keep filing for you and not make you have to go out and do an individual claim on your own. Uh, we are working on a process uh, right now to make it easier uh, to switch over from employer to individual, uh, something that never had existed before because there was never a need for it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if that if that need arises, we're going to have that available. Uh, but, you know, employers, I would strongly suggest you work. Like I, I called a couple of employers over the weekend uh, that there was some confusion on. They had mm-hmm. some people and I explained to them the process, how it works and how they can no, uh, because they were under the impression that they were told to open up and they told their employees to come back that they had to immediately stop unemployment. That is not true. Um, and nor is it in anywhere on our website and anything that we've sent out that that's the case. Matter of fact, you can actually call back employees right now, especially if they're at reduced wages. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we're not looking at the hours anymore. So people say, well, what if it's part time? What if my hours have been reduced? We're not looking at that. We're just looking at the amount of money that you're bringing home. Uh, and you can actually still collect unemployment and be going to work at the same time, as long as uh, the amount of money you're making a week does not exceed uh, your uh, $300 plus your benefit amount you're getting from the state. As long as you're under that number by at least a dollar, mm-hmm. then you can actually still uh, at least receive uh, some uh, state unemployment and the federal. And we built that system, or we actually made changes to the system at the very beginning of this. So that could be the case when things started opening back up.
2: And, Commissioner, I want you to repeat that again, because I know there was a lot of confusion. uh, So I'm just going to ask you to repeat that again for our listeners.
1: Okay. So you can, and I mean, there's a lot of misinformation, especially out there on social media, where we have a lot of people who fancy themselves as experts right now. But here's, you're hearing it from me. And so you can, if you if you're going back to work, or if your employer is opening back up, either if you're filing on your own or if they're doing it for you, you can still collect unemployment for a period of time while you're still earning wages. We have increased the exemption amount of wages up to three hundred dollars. Okay, so just try to make it as simple as I possibly can. As long as your weekly pay, mm-hmm. not bi-weekly, not monthly, your weekly pay does not exceed the $300 exemption plus whatever you were granted in weekly benefits from the state, Mm -hmm. all right? As long as it doesn't exceed that and you're getting at least $1 of benefit from us, then you'll still uh, be qualified for the 600. So uh, from the feds, which is totally separate, all right? So, I mean, it's a pretty simple formula. Mm -hmm. Just take a look at whatever you got from us and it says, okay, let's say if your weekly benefit is $300, from us, let's just say for argument's sake that it is, and, and you basically can make um, $599 because mm-hmm. that number does not exceed $300 plus um, your, uh, your weekly benefit amount.
2: For those that were concerned about, well, does that include that extra $600 coming from the federal government, or is that something totally different?
1: no that that does not go into the math right there the qualification for the 600 has to do with whether or not you're receiving any state unemployment and mm-hmm. the rule from them is you have to get at least one dollar of state unemployment benefit now however that's figured you know as long as you're getting at least one dollar from us then you qualify for the 600 okay. right i mean a lot of people are getting confused. I mean, it's two, se- two totally separate systems. Mm-hmm. You've got the state unemployment, and then you've got all these new programs that Congress passed, which are federal unemployment, that we are having to administer on their behalf uh, using their rules and how they want it done, uh, which can be extremely difficult at mm-hmm. times but, because uh, they can be really slow in telling you. I mean, in a perfect world, what should have happened? Is when they came up with all these ideas for all these different things they wanted to do. They should have given us all the states, not just Georgia. All the states, uh, you know, uh, let them go out and come up with a system and say, okay, you know, we want you to use this system to, mm-hmm. to administer this. But no, they said, y'all figure it out. <laughs> so, wow. that's what we've been doing.
2: All right. Next question. This comes from a listener who emailed in that said, look, uh, there are about six of us, my coworkers, we're 1099 folks. And we followed all the instructions and filed for the unemployment income when it was open to us on April 6th. Then we were told to wait until the 22nd and would start receiving invites to apply for the PUA. Again, that's the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. I've never received a second email. It says it's still being processed and to wait 48 hours. It's now been two weeks. What should I do to get this process going?
1: well i mean i can tell you that there's a probably a good chance that that person who sent you that message probably got their claim processed over the weekend Uh, some of the auto processing that we had been doing uh, that really speeds up processing of claims we had to put that on hold uh, last week uh, for the first half of the week because we were using all of our programmers uh, to finish up this new uh, pua system for the self-employed Uh, I mean, I can't say enough good things about our programmers to be able to build the system Mm -hmm. uh, and get it up and running as quickly as they did. Uh, And it's a brand new system. Um, You know, basically, they did it in two, two and a half weeks. And this is something that should have taken six to eight months, then with another month worth of testing. Uh, and they're continuing to make changes to that system and enhancements because there's going to be bugs in it because it didn't exist mm-hmm. or this type of unemployment did not exist uh, until Congress passed it and the U.S. Department of Labor gave us the rules, uh, which we didn't really get those rules totally finished up until about a week and a half ago. And, and they keep coming back with different things. Matter of fact, we're supposed to be having a call with them tomorrow about something else that they mm-hmm. want to do. but uh it's always a moving target with them uh but uh if you know if it at the end of today or or the end of monday uh Mm -hmm. rolls past uh and their claim hasn't been processed then uh we need to find out how those individuals are and get in touch with them because uh it should have been processed by Mm -hmm. now and something else may be holding up maybe an incomplete um uh, application uh, something was left off and it's hanging out there because we have seen some cases where that where somebody thought they finished the application but they mm-hmm. left something off and that was hanging out there incomplete
2: and commissioner oh. if you want with the approval of the emailer we will forward that information to you this comes from angela who writes commissioner i'm able to ascertain from the department's automated system my claim balance number of weeks for which i am eligible and the ability to request weekly payments however it also directs me to call the the Career Center, which is located on Phoenix Boulevard in College Park, in order to ascertain why my payments have yet to start. But, she says, when I call the Career Center, obviously it's closed due to the pandemic. What can I do?
1: Well, first of all, none of our Career Centers are actually closed. They're just not open to the public, and that's done to uh, minimize large crowds in there that would be close quarters, Mm -hmm. along with our staff, which would really increase the likelihood of somebody getting affected and, and causing uh, spreading of, of the virus. Uh, so they're still working back there. Uh, the problem with getting through a lot to a lot of our career centers, and some people are getting even messages saying, um, you know, that the phone's been disconnected, it actually has And some people said, well, I'm calling, and as soon as they pick up, they're hanging up on me. That's not true either. What is happening is there's so many calls that are coming in to the career centers uh, that it's actually jamming up the digital phone system to the point to where after it rings so many times, it just stops. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually picked up and hung up. Uh, it just uh, the phone system just cuts it off after so many rings. Uh, and there's uh, due to, you know, a million people filing in four weeks time. Uh, there is no way you can add enough phone lines or enough people answering the phone to keep up with the call volume. I mean, there's just, it's, it's a, it's a physical impossibility.
2: So should she just continue to wait or?
1: Well, I mean, it kind of depends on the situation now. Mm -hmm. I mean, without seeing the person's uh, screen and and Mm -hmm. where they are in the process, you know, if they've, if, if they started their claim, you know, way back in the first part of March and they still haven't received payment, then there's probably something wrong with the, the claim it could be a hold because of uh, an ID hole or something like that, mm-hmm. where maybe the social security number is not matching with the name or the driver's license not matching with the, uh, the, the name. Uh, and then we do need to get in touch with that person. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're using a lot of different methods to get in touch with people, whether mm-hmm. it's social media, email, obviously, the phones you know, sometimes you can get through, but it is difficult. We know it is. Uh, but also, we were also using a lot of different associations and chambers of commerce that are also helping pass us. Uh, information and names uh, also
2: well i guess the good thing is she's able to see the claim balance and number of weeks for which she's eligible and the ability to request weekly payments so i guess that's a start you just have to figure out what's the hold up now is what you're saying
1: right and and sometimes and we actually have gone in and changed the language on this when you see the thing says your week has been claimed has not been paid or can't be or cannot be paid uh, that only means that you know you're the entire process for you has not finished. It hasn't gone through the final approval, so it can't be paid yet. Uh, so I got them to go in there and take that language out about cannot be paid because that was causing some confusion as people were thinking, oh, I'm not going to get paid. No, we've, it just means we've got your request. Uh, mm-hmm. You're still in process. Um, and on individual claim, that takes longer because we have to get in contact with the employer. Uh, and then they do have, uh, by rule and by law, um, uh, an opportunity to, to comment on the unemployment
2: claim. The voice you hear is Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, and he's answering questions and comments from you, the listeners that you emailed or tweeted to me. Commissioner Butler, let's continue. Here's a question from Ben via Twitter. My question is, with businesses being allowed to reopen, if a business chooses to remain closed, are their employees still eligible for the benefits? What if they don't feel safe returning to a job dealing with the public? Can they refuse to the recall and get unemployment income.
1: I guess on the first part of the question is if the if the employer is not reopening because they don't you know because they're, they're not ready to or they you know because just because the governor said you could open it, it doesn't demand that you do. I mean it's still a free country and you, the employer can can decide on when they feel it's good for them. I know a lot of business owners who are not going to open yet, uh, and in those cases, yes, obviously because you're still employed, you'd be able to get it. Uh, if the time comes to reopen, it goes back to the, uh, another question that I guess we'd already previously uh, had talked about where if they do to reopen and you personally don't feel safe, uh, you need to talk to your employer and kind of work things out with them. Uh, and, and there's obviously those categories, again, uh, have to do with uh, if, if you are uh, – that there are acceptable reasons that you don't have to go back uh, that are accepted that, that you will allow you to get unemployment. And that is mm-hmm. if you've been told uh, that you are highly susceptible um, or, or you have a, a immune uh, compromising type situation through a, whatever ongoing illness, whether that it be asthma, whatever. Uh, as long as you can prove that uh, through a physician that says that you know you do need to stay quarantined, then that's acceptable. Or if you're over 60 years of age, or if you live with somebody under those two categories, or if you have uh, kids that are school age uh, that you have no way to get them childcare right now, mm-hmm. uh, all that is acceptable to stay on unemployment. And which did not exist before the crisis.
2: Okay, thank you, Commissioner Butler. Here's another question. Commissioner Butler, do you know if certain industries, other than restaurants, are in dire need of workers? If so, what are they and how can I find out? I really want to work, not in a restaurant, however.
1: Well, I mean, you're saying a lot of retailers that are staying open, uh, whether you know, you're talking about either the grocery stores, uh, drug stores, um, also a lot of the uh, companies that ship uh, or, or do home delivery. Uh, a lot of those, um, I think Instacart comes to mind, some of these others, uh, a lot of those uh, are hiring right now. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there, there are opportunities, a lot of those opportunities uh, are, are out there on a lot of the, the job boards right now.
2: Okay, here's a question. If you got your social security number wrong, I got two digits mixed up, can you reapply again? I don't want to be accused of any oh, shady God. stuff <laughs> if I do reply do not, again.
1: Do not reapply. okay. That's a, that, that has been a mistake that a lot of people have made that has really caused a lot of problems, not only for them, but also for our, our system is where they've gone in and done multiple unemployment, uh, applications. You only need one, uh, just because, you know, and a lot of people say, well, uh, applied this week and I waited a couple of days and I didn't get any money. So I applied again. Well, I mean, it doesn't happen that fast to begin with, but, uh, going back in and taking out duplicate applications, uh, is is somewhat difficult um and also we've had some people that have applied three and four and five times uh and that's a huge issue for them but it's also a huge issue for us because a lot of the innovations that we've come up with in order to uh, process a lot of these claims faster when there's multiple claims like that it can actually stop that process for everybody because we don't do like for example if we're trying to process fifty thousand claims Mm -hmm. Uh, and do an auto processing, we don't run all 50,000 in one batch. We'll break it up, say, and I'm I'm oversimplifying here, but we'll break it up into batches of 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, you know. And so if that claim, that person who's done multiple claims, if they show up in two or three different batches, it stops that next batch. And that we have to go in take that person out and then restart that batch again. And this is the kind of work that we're doing overnight while everybody's sleeping mm-hmm. and our computer folks are not sleeping, and so it, it delays uh, all that process. Uh, when when we have to go back in there and we say, okay, this person applied again, so we pull them out, start the batch over, wait for that to finish, and then do it again. And so, don't do that. Uh, I mean, what you need to do is we need to get in, You know, get, you need, we need to get you in touch with us so we can uh, get your social security number fixed. Uh, a lot of times what you will get is, um, because we have your contact information, you'll get a letter from us and it'll say, hey, your social security number did not match uh, your name and your driver's license on here. We need to, you to send in a verification of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so make sure you're checking your mail and your email.
2: And here's a comment and sort of a question from Kevin via Twitter. He says the Georgia Department of Labor fax machines are basically busy signals. He goes on to question why fax. Um, can they just take a jpeg photo from your phone it's easier to send and accepted by banks for check deposits and i guess do folks have to fax in some information typically commissioner butler
1: that's one of the options and there's also emails too it just kind of depends on uh, the thing and a lot of times the fax numbers actually are, are going into an email box in some places so mm-hmm. but yes there are some processes that require such of fax where we give that where we give that option to uh and there are some ways and some apps that you can do that also with Okay, but uh, but we do know that the fax machines are going to have the exact same problem as the phone lines I mean if you've got 10,000 people trying to fax into the same number
2: it's gonna be on busy. the same
1: day yeah, yeah I mean it it, it, it is I mean you know I, you know I wish we could all of a sudden poof magically come up with you know 20,000 phone lines and 20,000 people that knew how to answer everybody's questions you know overnight but it's not something that you can really do uh, it's just like you know uh we are adding capacity with some vendors uh for some processes uh Mm -hmm. but the truth of the matter is you know if you add a uh, if you go hire a call center and add 500 phone lines you know first of all with the volume of calls we're seeing in georgia that's really not going to make that big of a deal but you're also going to get in touch with somebody who really can't answer your questions either Mm
0: -hmm. uh
1: because it takes a while to train somebody to do this process it's it's not easy and plus they also have to go through a federal background check in order to do this you don't want just anybody uh going through these documentation Mm -hmm. because it has a lot of very sensitive information about you you know where you live your social security how much you make all that kind of stuff and so uh, we are adding uh, people to the process the first people that we add to the process to help out we're actually uh, retirees, recent retirees. Also, anybody that had, in the last few years, that knew how to process claims that had transferred to other state departments, we've asked to borrow them back uh, because those individuals are already trained. We don't have to you know, spend uh, a lot of time uh, working with them and training them. Uh, but we have also started adding capacity uh, through vendors that already have background checks for individuals to help us with some of the processes that don't require a lot of training.
2: Now, here is a question from Leah. My employer filed for unemployment for my behalf in late March. I have a limited work history and I should qualify for the PUA, again, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. Um, what can I expect to get a PUA application or any information to help me get assistance?
1: Well, we started uh, sending out the emails on the 22nd, and we had a uh, the initial list of people that were pre-qualified was roughly about 300,000 people, and we did not send all of those people an email at the same time. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is because if you send out 300,000 emails at, say, you know, nine o'clock on the 22nd, then at 10 o'clock you're going to have 300,000 people applying all at once, in which would cause a probably a system crash. And so we said, started sending out basically blocks of email requests throughout that day and then in the days following to spread those out, to not overstress the system um, because it wouldn't do any good to send you an email and then our system crash. Hmm. Uh, and so after the initial ones were sent out, we're continually sweeping our system for people who've applied or their employer has applied for them. And once they're identified as somebody who did not, uh, qualify for regular UI, then they would send, we would uh, send them an email link if your email is on file with us. If you have not put an email on file with us, you need to go into our system and add that. It'd be very helpful. Um, also, uh, make sure you're checking your spam filter. We've heard reports mm-hmm. from a lot of people that they said, oh, I didn't get the email. But then when they looked in their spam filter, there it was.
2: Okay, now this is a question from Laura. Why, if by law, 2019 taxes are not due until July 2020, Do I, as self-employed, pet sitter and dog walker, have to submit my 2019 taxes now to qualify for the PUA, again, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance? Is that something you can answer, Commissioner?
1: Yes, I I can, because that's 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 another one of those Internet rumors. Uh, We are not uh, requiring you to have your 2019 taxes done. Okay, it is one of the acceptable forms of income verification, but there's a whole list. It's all, if you look on our website, uh, there's the original PUA uh, guidelines that we sent out back on the 13th. Uh, and there's a whole list of ways that you can document your income. Uh, first and all, first of all, you're self-attesting and you have up to 21 days to send us in all your proof. Uh, the, the The taxes being done is, is the easiest way is what we've said because Uh, we have worked out a system with the Georgia Department of Revenue where we can ping them and get an instant verification of your income. Mm -hmm. And so obviously, if you've already done your taxes, that's going to be the easiest, all right? The other ones, you have to upload, and at some point, there's actually going to have to be, you know, human hands touch that application and look through the paperwork and check it off. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, no, it has never been at any point a requirement that you had to have your taxes done. As a matter of fact, if you're a former employer, or uh, whoever you're getting your money from, is say, let's say for example you are a 1099. Mm-hmm. Those 1099 records have also already been sent uh, to the Department Revenue, so we'll be able to to ping and see those too. But you'll still need to, when you do the PUA, there's a, you know, it gives you uh, an opportunity during the process uh, to send and scan whatever all your information and all your income verification and however you, you know, under the accepted guidelines to send that in. But, no, we have never at any time said you had to have your taxes done.
2: Okay, and I know we're short on time, so I want to get two more in. This is from AJ. AJ was a restaurant manager. The restaurant had to close. And AJ writes, I filed for unemployment the 17th of March. I received an email stating my claim was processed on the 29th. I also received a letter showing the verification of my income and the weekly amount I could receive. But as of April 27th, AJ has not received anything. A.J. says, the online account says a determination has not been made. How much longer can I expect to wait?
1: That sounds like that he had some kind of ID stop or something like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's one of those individuals, if you could pass their information on, uh, we can uh, go in there and figure out what the stop was. But Mm -hmm. it sounds like he got an ID stop based on uh, some of his information not matching up.
2: And this next question comes from Josie, who says, I just came to work in Atlanta in January 2020, I was furloughed from my two cooking jobs in mid-March due to COVID. I filed for Georgia unemployment and was denied for not having earned sufficient income in the state. Um, I'm expecting a link to file for the PUA. How long do you think this could take? On the other hand, I did work in Virginia for about 10 years, and I filed for unemployment in that state. But I guess Josie's questions about now so, only having worked in Georgia for just a few months.
1: Uh, well, filing two claims, that could be an issue right there. In two different states? Um, Right, because at some point those are going to get crossed up, because there is an interstate claim uh, system where it does pick up and it'll bounce around for wages, but um, I would just caution that person, if you end up getting paid on the Virginia claim, uh, don't do anything on the Georgia one. Just stop that process. Yeah, You don't want to get yourself in trouble uh, with running two different claims at the same time.
2: And Commissioner, um, go ahead.
1: Uh, but but uh but yes, I mean he under Georgia, if you know he didn't have enough wages he would qualify for the PUA and he should expect a link and also if he hasn't gotten one yet, I would it goes back to the check your spam filter.
2: Commissioner, our final question someone is asking about the debit card. Should I be expecting a debit card? Even though I've put my direct deposit information online, how can someone claim benefits also for previous weeks not highlighted on the online system? Let's answer the debit card uh, question first.
1: Well, I guess it kind of depends. I didn't need more, a little bit more information on that mm-hmm. question because if they filed individually and they put in uh, their uh, debit card information as an individual when they filed, then no, they would not receive a debit card mm-hmm. uh, because they would, they, uh, the system would not request one. Um, so, uh, but now if, if their employer filed for them and the employer did not fi- did not uh, tell them in a timely manner mm-hmm. that they had filed, uh, then their first payment would be on the debit card. And then after that, uh, if they have gone into the system and put their uh, information in, then the rest of it should go direct deposit. And and what was the second half of the question?
2: How can someone claim benefits for previous weeks not highlighted on the online system
1: when they started their claim, they should have claimed the weeks that that they were out of work, and so it should be on there. And so uh, unless it's somebody that's PUA, uh, because the PUA, we were going to use the current claim system for the PUA claims also, but we found Mm -hmm. that it was going to be much easier and much faster uh, to document uh, with a separate um, uh, weekly claim system. And so we've asked all those that are on PUA To claim on that system instead of the regular one um, in which in that case they would put Mm -hmm. in all the weeks even the ones that they had previously certified for on the old system put all of them in there Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if that answers that question because that I would uh, I'm not sure if that person what they're saying is they forgot or they missed some weeks they should have claimed Mm -hmm. and want to go back Um, in that case uh, they may need to get in touch with us because uh, if they did an individual claim and they started their claim at the wrong date, then that would have to be something that had to be manually adjusted. You can't do that online.
2: And Commissioner Butler, as we wrap up, I know we talked about a lot. Was there any question or concern that you were expecting to get that maybe we didn't cover that you want to address because there's been so much maybe misinformation out there? I know you covered the $300 extra, but is there anything else?
1: Well, there's also one thing uh, uh, we have discovered uh, because you know we also had the federal extended benefits that are kicking in and we're having to, to build that into our system also. Some people uh, who would qualify for that system are also getting the PUA link. Uh, and we're saying, go ahead and fill out the PUA because we have found a way where we can actually, uh, even though you're applying for, it looks like you're applying for the wrong thing, uh, we are. We have discovered in this process, after we started sending these out, that we can actually uh, capture your information, and then we can go in later and and switch you over to the other program. And it really doesn't mean any any difference to you because you want your money and you want it as quickly as possible. So if you're one of those individuals who have exhausted your regular state benefits and you've got the PUA application, go ahead and do it. Uh, because how we've got, I mean, we, we will fix it all on the back end, because really, it's going to be the same money from the same source, mm-hmm. and the big issue is just the accounting part that we have to give back to the feds, and we will be able to do that later on. we we found a way to, to do that. Not everybody in that situation is going to get that, but if you did, go ahead.
2: Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, thank you so much for agreeing to take our listeners' questions and comments. Right, thanks. <laughs> And closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, 566 federal inmates have confirmed positive for COVID-19. Now, that's nationwide. Twenty-four inmates have died, and 248 have recovered. Now, this is data that was released earlier in the week. It's interesting because last month in an opinion piece for the New York Times. Dr. Amanda Klonsky, an advocate for prisoners' rights, wrote, quote, If you think a cruise ship is a dangerous place to be during a pandemic, consider America's jails and prisons. The new coronavirus spreads at its quickest in closed environments, close quote. So right now, there are approximately 2.3 million people serving sentences in the U.S. Now, add in the number of those who work in these facilities it's probably impossible to practice social distancing. But there's more to this issue as well. Joining me is Sylvia Harvey, an award-winning journalist and author of The Shadow System, Mass Incarceration, and the American Family. Now, she was previously scheduled to join me live in studio, but now, of course, due to the pandemic, she joins me from New York City. Sylvia, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Rose. It's great to be here.
2: First of all,
3: (laughs) yeah,
2: I appreciate that. But let's, before we get into our other conversation, I want to ask, how are you doing? You're in New York. We all know what's happening. How are you?
3: You know, I'm I'm doing okay. I'd say that I'm surviving. I'd say that I am blessed that I haven't directly been impacted or any close families, but just family members. But just to see what's happening to this city um, is devastating to see the number of people that uh, have succumbed to the virus to just the way things have shifted it's it's scary it's mm-hmm. scary but you know as they say we're New York tough and uh, we're surviving and doing the best that we can to come out of this
2: So much has been made of course about how what actions do we take to flatten the curve and I guess when we talk about the nation's prisons and jails and other and detention centers, uh, do you think, Early on, that maybe not much was paid attention to having a plan for these type of facilities and dealing with this pandemic.
3: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Um, the problem is that people that are uh, in our nation's jails and prisons. Uh, to a large degree have been considered our nation's throwaways. So we haven't been thinking fully as a nation, how do we make sure that they also are taken care of? How do we make sure that we put proper protocol in place to ensure that they are healthy, right? We're thinking about people that are Uh, in jails right we have 740,000 people in jail on any given day and this is you know something that you go in you could stay for three days you could stay for a month you come out and it's just it's just moving and moving and moving and when you think about the close quarters it's nearly impossible to social distance we certainly uh haven't thought about what this could do to them while in their um and they're subjected to a substandard healthcare system inside the facilities. It's just, we haven't thought about it. They, they're they they're less than an afterthought. Mm-hmm. They have not been thought about at all.
2: Now, when we talk about federal prisons, obviously that's different when we talk about jails and detention centers. For example, I'll use Atlanta where in Fulton County, they have been looking at the, the severity of the charges for said inmate and depending on the charge and, and if it's a, what they call a low level offense, perhaps those inmates have been released some with ankle monitors or maybe been given a bond so
3: i think that what is happening at the federal level uh, is that there is some kind of uniformity that's happening right so because these prisons are all ran by the bureau of prisons they can decide what are we going to do nationwide right we can have a nationwide lockdown right so that means that all uh, 146,000 000 of those prisoners have to stay inside their cells right they they have more control of how they can contain the virus but one of the big problems is what we're doing or not doing at the state level right mm-hmm. so all states facilities the jails the prisons in these different states have their own regulations so they're taking different steps right so some of these states are doing something right and it, it's being very helpful they're releasing incarcerated people they're trying to reduce the size of their population mm-hmm. right so some local governments are suspending jail time for technical violations they're reducing or stopping arrests for low level offense we're seeing at the state level some elderly vulnerable prisoners uh being released right pre-trial detainees um that we have 555,000 people being held um pre-trial, meaning that they haven't been convicted of a crime, Mm -hmm. but we're holding them. So if they're being held because they can't afford the $400 bail to get out and then return for their court date, they're putting themselves at this huge risk, right? So some local governments are saying, hey, let's let out some of these pre-trial detainees. Let's let them go and they can come back when it's time for them uh, to go to trial. People that are serving misdemeanor sentences, they're also letting some of them go
2: for family members who aren't able now to come visit someone that has an emotional effect on the inmate. Yeah, it has a huge, a huge emotional impact, right?
3: If we just think about how difficult it is for us not to be able to have dinner with our loved ones or meet with our friends or anything like that, it's just compounded when we think about people that um, have loved ones that are incarcerated. So you're not able to meet face-to-face. So that generally means the second best thing is to talk on the phone, mm-hmm. right? And it's not like they can talk on the phone in the way that we can, right? We Communication is nearly free or at least low cost for us. We have access to services like Zoom, mm-hmm. which is now really popular, and Skype. But for families of the incarcerated, those phone calls and video calls and emails are expensive. We've got hundreds of counties that continue to charge $15 to $18 for a 15-minute phone call, Mm -hmm. right? So let's imagine if you're in one of those counties where if you want to talk to your dad that's in prison or you want to talk to your son or you want to talk to your wife, you have to spend up to $15 to talk to them for 15 minutes. In Mississippi, where one of my families from the book is located, it's $6.99 for a video visit, right? So what does it mean to have to spend that amount of money just to stay in touch because you can't go in
2: person? Speaking of families, Sylvia, and that's the approach you take in your book, The Shadow System. And first of all, I want to back up, though, tell me about your dad and how he's doing.
3: So my dad is my dad is doing very well. Um, my dad served 27 years uh, in California prisons. And in 2012, uh, he came home, you know, and I won't just say came home because obviously uh, there was a lot of work put into that, mm-hmm. but I was able to learn things that I didn't know about the parole board. I was able to sort of arm myself with the information necessary to get him an attorney and make sure that, you know, he he was able to come home, make sure things uh, were not used against him during his hearing. Um, and he's been home since 2012. He did his five years on parole, and now he's off so he can go anywhere in the world. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been amazing. I have to say it's been mm-hmm. amazing. And he's certainly um, a, big, a big inspiration for why I think that these stories of so many families are so important.
2: Your dad's story, your dad's journey, your journey with your dad after losing your mom, was that a big reason for you writing the book, The Shadow System?
3: Yeah, that's one of the questions that I always have to sit and think a bit about, right? I do say that had I not been a child of an incarcerated parent, right? Had my father not served 27 years in prison, would I be where I am today? Um and I can't say for sure, right? I think that he has given me insight into the mass injustice that's happening, right? So through his experiences, I've been able to see what happens at the local level, what happens at the state level, what happens you know, in terms of costs, in terms of how families are exploited, how the child welfare system can be involved. I think that being in this position has given me insight into what's happening just so many families.
2: How did you come up with, or what was your process for the stories of families, the stories that you're telling in the shadow system? I don't wanna to give too much away to our listeners.
3: You know, what I, what I thought was really important was to focus on uh, families that were experiencing very severe aspects of our criminal justice system. And not just severe in the sense of, um, being incarcerated, right? But what are you incarcerated for and how much time? I think that we pay a lot of attention, which rightfully so to people that have been sentenced for uh, drug crimes, right? We know that there's a huge disparity in the number of people that are incarcerated for drug crimes and the sentencing um, disparity between people of color, Mm -hmm. right? And white people, right? We know black people, brown people are incarcerated at a significantly higher rate when it comes to drug crimes, right? At one point it was 100 to one, um, for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. But f- over 50% of our state prison population are people that are incarcerated for uh, serious offenses. So what does it mean to be convicted of murder, right? So for me, mm-hmm. it was important to think about families that were impacted by very serious crimes to some degree. So the young man that I feature in Florida is 20 years old when he's convicted. Mm-hmm. He's convicted of um First degree murder, and he's sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So the question is, why are you sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, but also how you got to a point where you are convicted of such a crime? And for me, that means I have to go back and look at his life. I have to go back and see what his mother did or did not do. Was his father present? What kind of job did his mother have? Mm-hmm. Was she working two jobs? Was she not able to stay present in his life and to go to you know work to make sure that she was able to take care of him? What happened when he was at school, when he got into a fight, instead mm-hmm. of being taken to the principal's office, you are arrested as a juvenile. And what does it mean to be arrested as a juvenile and then to be Funnel into this system, right? So at that point, I'm looking at the school to prison pipeline. So there are all these threads that make up a person's story. So Mm -hmm. we can just say, hey, here's this person that is a murderer. Instead of saying, this is the person that's convicted of murder, and we need to understand why. We need to look at the conditions, we need to look at the actions, we need to look at the inactions. All of that stuff matters. But also, what does that mean for his daughter?
2: that was not even born when he was locked up. So let me ask you this, what all this meant for little Sylvia Harvey? Because as you're writing this, was this cathartic for you at all as well, Sylvia? You know,
3: (laughs) that's a good question. And I don't, I can't say that it was. I found myself to a huge degree being very angry because I saw the same things happening. I was just, I was, stunned by the level of inequity that I saw. I just, I could not believe that it was still happening, right? So it wasn't like, hey, I'm able to get this out and it's over. It's like, no, this has only gotten worse. And I will say that there was only one part of the book where I felt like, what am I doing? And I couldn't really write Uh, One of the chapters, it was kind of the ending chapter. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, I think it was personal because this was a chapter where I was talking about the eight-year-old girl Mm -hmm. and the idea, this eight-year-old girl doesn't know that her father is convicted of murder and that he is sentenced to essentially die in prison. She doesn't know that. She's focused on when are you coming home? And the only thing her father can tell her is soon well, he could tell her more, but he's saying soon. And she's getting to a point where she's questioning, well, what do you mean soon? You keep telling me soon. And I think that for me, that resonated because as a young person, you're always saying, hey, daddy, when you're coming home? Mm-hmm. And my father's response was always as soon as I can, baby. Right. And that meant as soon as he can, maybe that's never, but you don't know that as a young person. So I think that at least one chapter, I stopped and I called my dad and I was just like, I can't write this. And I was crying. and he essentially talked me through and he said, step back, right? Like, let's think about the story. Let's mm-hmm. think about what's happening um, and, and separate yourself. And he's great at that. Like after being incarcerated for so long, he is the master at detachment and um, so once he reminded me that hey, you probably see yourself in this little girl, which is why you can't write it, and you need to step away, I, I said, oh, well, okay, that's a good point. <laughs> so I, I stepped away and kind of went to a different chapter, and then came back uh, to that chapter when I wasn't thinking so much of of what this little girl's life could be like.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, Sylvia, when we started this conversation, we talked about due to the pandemic and how this is affecting not only just those who are incarcerated, but their families. So as we wrap up, what is your hope that coming out of this pandemic, if there is going to be any changes or modification to our nation's correctional facilities?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I would say that I hope that we're able to use this tragedy to literally transform our criminal justice system, right? This is something we've been trying to do forever, but perhaps seeing something that has been so devastating can get us to think about the level of inequity, right? We could end broken windows policing. You know, this is a practice that for minor street-level drug and quality of life offenses Mm -hmm. um, that are leading to far too many people being arrested, right? We could end that. We could end cash bail, which we know perpetuates the cycle of poverty and incarceration if mm-hmm. you can't spend the 300 400 dollars to get out that means you have to stay in jail if you have to stay in jail for two months that could mean that your children are going to go into foster care that could mean that you're losing your job you're losing your apartment you're literally losing everything because you didn't have enough money to bail out right that is something that we could in we don't we shouldn't have cash bail right we could also think about these unimaginably long prison sentences that we're uh issuing which is helping keep the incarceration rate high right mm-hmm. we can start releasing more elderly prisoners we have so many prisoners that are incarcerated and they're over 65. uh the the father in my story in mississippi has been in prison for 39 years mm-hmm. right like that there has been there's no study that shows us that keeping people in prison for that long uh, ensures public safety or reduces recidivism. So we could we could actually start paroling these people. I think that those are just some of the small steps that we could take, right? Thinking about how we're policing, making sure we get rid of uh, cash bail, stop um, these unimaginably long prison sentences start granting parole, which is something we see happening in California, mm-hmm. but also start thinking about people that are incarcerated as humans, right? We have to recognize that these are people that also deserve something, right? They have families, they siblings and parents and children and spouses and they have communities and advocates. And I think that if we think about them uh, in in a way that shows them some regard, we can think about how we can shift our criminal justice system, that's that's a huge problem is that we just, we don't consider them as a nation. We don't consider them um, as valuable or as important because um, of an offense that they've committed. We're not thinking about rehabilitation, and we should be.
2: The book is called The Shadow System, Mass Incarceration and the American Family, and it's by journalist and author Sylvia A. Harvey. Always good to talk to a fellow journalist. Sylvia, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Best of luck to you in New York. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Knavey. As always, if you missed any of today's program, it's online at WABE.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.